Hello, this is Real Estate Insights, the podcast from Savills that's happy to ride any roller coaster if it means getting to the heart of a property story. And today we're looking at visitor attractions and asking what it is that attracts investors to this sector. These are very cash-generative businesses and difficulty in obtaining planning consent for a, for a new visitor attraction means that it's difficult for new entrants to come into the market. And we'll look at the post-COVID prospects for a market that was thriving before COVID. A lot of these visitor attractions will be thinking about adding accommodation to their offering. That's something unique that this sector can offer. I'm Guy Ruddle, and with me today are three members of the Savills Leisure and Trade team who between them know more than's good for them about their market. Ian Simpson is Head of Leisure and Trade at Savills and knows so much about the sector, he's been appointed as an expert witness in arbitration matters at the High Court, no less. Hello, Ian. Welcome to, to Real Estate Insights. Good afternoon. Hi. And Kay Griffiths is an associate director in the team. The list of things she's an expert in would take about 10 minutes to read out, so I'm not going to do all that, but it ranges from airfields to water-based leisure properties. Kay, welcome to the podcast. Hello, guys. And Ellis Auger is a director in the team, and the UK isn't big enough for him. He also covers Europe. Ellis, welcome to you too. Thanks, Guy. So let's get going. Uh, visitor attractions. Ian, can I start with you and ask what might be a bit of a stupid question, but what is a visit? I mean, what constitutes a, a visitor attraction? Well, effectively, um, it, it is a paid for venue that people uh, go to. So the best examples that people will understand are things like um, zoos or animal parks or aquaria. Uh, theme parks, um, Alton Towers would be a well-known one, for example. But the commonality is uh, that uh, people pay an entry fee generally, and then subsequently there are various opportunities for secondary spend within the venue. And are they all big, or do you get sort of little ones as well? No, you do get, I mean, there's quite a broad spectrum there. You get um, small attractions sometimes that in some cases only attract twenty or 30,000 um, visitors a year, but um, regional local or local attractions often have sub 100,000 visitor members a year. Larger regional ones are 100 to 250,000. National might be 250 to a million. And then the really big ones, um, uh, things like the London Eye, for example, might have in excess of a million visitors a year. Really, a million people go on the, something like the London Eye in a year. Takes a long time to go around. I sort of can't imagine you can get a million people on that, but there you go. Kay, um, sort of leaving COVID aside for a minute, and only for a minute, but leaving it aside before COVID came, what was the market like? Was it was it a thriving market? Yes, Guy, it was. It was extremely thriving. We were starting to sort of see a real increase in discretionary spending. Um, many more people spending on experiences rather than products. Um, this was sort of driven by two main groups. You've got the older retired generation, but the millennials. And um, yeah, the, the desire to have an experience has really come about through people wanting to spend more money on holidays, health and fitness, eating out, and visitor, and visitor attractions. So it, it really is something that is changing and I think there's a stat here that we've come across, and that's 52% of consumers nowadays would rather spend that money on a good experience than a product. The, the experiential stuff, mm. it, it's a massive, it's a sort of massively growing market at the moment, Ellis, isn't it? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. As Kate just alluded to there, um, because of the fact that so much of the offer is is driven online, um, the millennials have um, a, a key influencer of how um, many types of visitor attraction decide to run their business. It really has changed the customer journey and how operators have had to adapt their models. Um, people are wanting to sort of create that long-lasting memory. Um, and one particular thing that we've seen is the competitive socialising concept has grown uh, and people sort of being more, they're enjoying the, the group venture rather than doing things single-handedly. So, you know, the operators have really had to sort of up their game. Um, the food and beverage offerings have had to become more so. So, so there's so many different factors that have changed. Um, and technology is one of those big ones. Uh, they, it can be used to improve the efficiency on the ground of that visitor journey um, with book, booking tickets but to the experience that they offer. And um, I guess that leads into social media. This has been something that's grown enormously over the last few years. And there is one factor that uh, uh, that lurks in the background, in the foreground, actually, that that you haven't mentioned, which of course right now is is COVID. And, and you know we can't really talk about anything without talking about the impact of COVID on it. Um, Ian, from from your point of view, uh, I imagine that, that the market's been absolutely decimated, has it? Um, well, I think it's quite it. it to, to a varying degree, looking specifically at the attractions market, it depends upon the uh, the nature of the, the particular attraction. And we've seen uh, some uh, heritage assets such as the National Trust close their doors because it's been very expensive for them to, to manage access safely. Um, but we have seen um, outdoor orientated attractions uh, such as zoos. They've had a terrible time in that their running costs are exactly the same they still have to look after the the, the animals uh, but they've got zero income but having said that um when the summer lockdown period uh, ended and people were allowed to go back to these sites we saw a major resurgence of uh, of activity at some of the, those outdoor orientated venues that to the extent that some of them are not going to be uh, that far behind last year which seems astonishing given that capacity of some of these sites can be down by uh, 20 to 40 percent, depending upon their their character. So I think the, the impact of COVID has been really quite varied. And I suppose that there is the, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's uh, cold comfort at the moment, but, um, you know, the, there's the people not travelling abroad thing as well, right? So that, you know, what what business there has been, has you know, people have been staying in, in the UK. Yes, and I mean, I, I think um, we've on other podcasts talked about the holiday park sector and linked to that is uh, people are staying in, in the UK and uh, holiday parks uh, have benefited from that. But people that go to holiday parks in the UK want to do things in the in the local area very often. So those those attractions, especially outdoor attractions um, in the traditional holiday centres, um, have been able to recoup some of the difficult um uh, circumstances which affected them uh, during the early part of the, the trading season from March through to July. Leading on from what was it, Ian's just been saying there, those visitor attractions which are in more uh, holiday destinations have actually traded very well where they've got that outside offer. And it's not just in terms of being able to 
um, support those turnover levels. It's also in terms of cost control because of the fact that you've got um, a lot of these visitor attractions are seeing uh, forward bookings uh, are up on last year in, in some cases, and that allows them to manage how many staff they have on site, etc., at any one time. And it also means, I think, with some of these um, outside offers, that um, they're, they're less exposed to inclement weather because people have made those bookings and to an extent they will come, come what may. It occurs to me that, that uh, this is the first episode of Real Estate Insights that we've recorded since the, the, the sort of flood of vaccine news. So it's reasonable, I think, to sort of look beyond COVID and, and, and imagine uh, a world uh, beyond COVID. Has COVID made the industry think in different ways so that they will have more opportunity or a different industry afterwards, do you think? Like Ian was saying about the sort of staycation effect, I think a lot of these visitor attractions will be thinking about adding accommodation to their offering. And it's quite a full market of that accommodation offering. But what we haven't seen much of is accommodation and visitor attractions together. And I think you know that's something unique that this sector can offer. Um, and some you know, visitor attractions have already made use of this. Uh, we're aware of a few zoos which have added accommodation and um, it's been a big hit this summer where people haven't been able to go abroad and go on their once in a lifetime opportunity to go somewhere exotic they can instead uh, go and spend the night in a zoo which is a, a very unique opportunity we've talked so far about it about this market from an operator point of view rather than from an investor uh, point of view um for ellis perhaps you could ask answer the the question of what makes a great visitor attraction from an investor point of view? I think the first first thing to mention here is that why do investors find this an attractive sector? Um, I think um, the first point to make in, in my mind is it's a fascinating sector because it's one of very few operational markets that have a price point in capital value terms ranging from a small attraction of, say, 500000 up to a one of 100, 200 million, say, um, with, a, with a, a global reach. And what that means is you've got lots of um, different groups of buyers attracted to the sectors, both from the owner-operators um, at the lower end of, the, of the, the value range who look at those businesses as a, um, a lifestyle choice. And, and then right up at the other end, you've got uh, pension funds and uh, private equity um, the, the likes of uh, Blackstone, who've previously been in the market or, or are with Merlin at the moment, um, who see the, the returns as being very attractive relative to other operational sectors. But I think what makes the sector attractive, I think high barriers to entry, um, the construction cost, um, and, and, and generally um, difficulty in obtaining planning consent for a, for a new visitor attraction means that it's difficult for new entrants to come into the market. These are very cash-generative businesses. Um, certainly in some cases, if you look at the, um, at the right up at the, the top end, where, as Ian said earlier, some of these visitor attractions are getting well over um, a million uh, visitors per, per year. It's the opportunity to diversify and expand the offer. As Kay was saying, um, we are seeing um, a big but a big growth spurt in um, accommodation on some of these uh, visitor attractions. Um, and also, generally speaking, there's 
certainly at the lower end of the market, um, values is derived on a profit-led basis, generally underpinned by the underlying assets. So yeah, th- there's a lot of plus points. Yeah, how do you value this sort of this sort of thing? It's, you know, in a property world, is, is it valued on the asset or is it valued on the you know on the income? Is it valued as a business rather yeah. than as rather than just as an asset? It, it, it's, it's a combination of the two, um, Guy, and there is this uh, interaction between underlying asset value, which is quite important um, to an investor, um, and uh, the trading business. Because if you had uh, um, a, a, an underlying asset, in the case of a visitor attraction, which is not making any money or is not um, is, is closed or trading, but clearly has the ability to trade successfully, it will still have a value because it is land and buildings, in this case of a, with a specialist um, design and specialist use, with planning permission. And that alone, in the right location, has a value. So there is always that underlying asset value. And, and the question um, that has to be answered in analysing the trading business um, is the extent to which um, that value might be enhanced by the operation of the business because a um, whilst you may have a, an underlying asset say worth um, a million or 10 million um, when the business becomes mature and starts to make um, a commercial level of return it is often valued by a, a multiple of that profit and clearly if the profits are insufficient for a multiple to exceed the underlying asset value the profits based valuation method becomes irrelevant uh, mm. but most mature commercial leisure visitor attractions are valued having regard to their trading performance and the multiples the sort of multiples that you um, you, you see uh, this type of business um, trade for um, can be between uh, six and eight times EBITDA and that perhaps um, uh, compares to a, a hotel where you might be looking at a multiple of 12 to 14 times EBITDA. Six or seven times EBITDA is not a big multiple, is it, for, you know, for, for business these days? No, it's not. And I think it reflects the relative risk associated with the visitor attractions market, because as we just talked about, visitor attractions, especially outdoor ones, can be affected quite significantly by poor UK weather, or they can be affected by uh, other influences such as sporting events. The Olympics, for example, or the Football World Cup can all, believe it or not, have an impact on people going to visitor attractions. So they're perceived to be slightly riskier in the normal world than for perhaps a hotel we have a clear pattern of occupancy and a clear income generating proposition and and it's that that risk that drives the multiple of uh, of EBITDA or multiple of profit that's supplied by an investor so a market which is which has got lots of potential because people want experiences and the like we're coming out of covid i mean everything's up for grabs isn't it you know, where does the market go from here do you think what what, what does the future look like I hesitate to use the Brexit word, but I think the uncertainty over travel overseas, uh, the remaining concern that I'm sure even with the vaccine that, that uh, may arise in relation to overseas travel and COVID um, may influence that continued stay in the UK and looking for um, things to do in the UK while you're on holiday in the UK. So I do see a positive aspect of, uh, of, of COVID, which has been very challenging for the economy uh, generally and for people personally. But uh, I, I think visitor attractions, as we talked earlier on, they provide some experience and that's what people like. Um, the, the drive in particular for younger people to uh, to do things together rather than just go and buy stuff. 
um, is, is, is going to continue. So I, th- I think visitor attractions, we have seen one or two new ones open in the, the UK over the last couple of years, which is, was quite encouraging and they are the theme type of attraction. So, uh, we've seen an increase in demand for outdoor space in particular. Yeah. I think sort of 18 and, uh, months uh, ago, everybody wanted an indoor attraction, but, um, now there's a big demand for outdoor. I think one of the, the questions which being, is being asked by um, a lot of investors in the market at the moment, and this goes not just for the visitor attraction market, is at what point will the sector get back to pre-pandemic levels of trade? Um, and that's a, that's a very difficult question to answer, but certainly from our conversations with operators in the sector, the general school of thought seems to be towards end of 2021 stroke, um, Q1 2022. Um, and obviously, if that proves to be the case, that would actually be a, a much quicker um, return to pre-pandemic levels of trade than actually are forecasted in, in many other sectors where um, they could be looking at a, a three to four year period of, of um, before they bounce back. And that's a happy note, I think, on which to draw the sort of main part of this conversation to a close and and, and move on to the Savile standout statistic, which we always have to do. Uh, I'm sure you've all got one prepared uh, for us today. Kay, uh, why don't we start with you, Kay? What's your Savile standout stat? I think an interesting stat I've come across recently is that repeat visitors are up 64% compared to 35% a year ago. So that's so that that does actually bode well for the for the industry. So that's a that's a nice positive one. Ellis, what about you? What's your Savile standout stat? I think quite an enlightening uh, statistic is the fact that investment in alternative asset classes uh, stood at around around only five percent of overall investment during the global financial crisis, um, and leading into the pandemic that figure was closer to around thirty percent of investment. And so I think what we could see are a lot more lease structures going into the sector. So that's another another positive uh, stat, which just leaves you, Ian. What's your stat for us today? Some of these attractions earn up to 15%, that's 1.5% of their annual income uh, over the two-week October half-term period, and hence the concern over the lockdown period. And thankfully, it was uh, deferred until after the October half-term Thank you all very much for your time and for your wisdom today. I think uh, none of you have been on Real Estate Insights before, so it's, it's been a pleasure to have, have three newcomers. That's <laughs> it for this episode of Real Estate Insights. Uh, if you want to delve more into the detail, you'll find plenty to keep you occupied uh, on a couple of websites, really. Savills.co.uk slash research is the one we always talk about, but you can also go to Savills.co.uk slash leisure. Uh, there's plenty there, including the latest aspects of leisure report which is uh, out very recently in the meantime thank you very much for listening and see you next time this podcast is for general information only and should not be considered professional advice Stavels accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct indirect or consequential loss arising from the use of reference to or reliance on this podcast or its content Savills makes no warranty as to the accuracy of the information in this podcast. This podcast and all copyright in this podcast is the property of Savills and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without Savills prior written consent.